Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, uh, we're going to be uh, in there at least for most of the time. Uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, near the end of it, starting in verse 33. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat near you. Um, And if you do not have one at home, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. Um, Romans chapter 11 is a... um, is an amazing passage that comes uh, that um, is right in the middle of a eleven chapter uh, complete explanation of the gospel, and then a five chapter response to how should we now live because the gospel is true. And so, it really is uh, a very remarkable piece of the book which uh, we want to look at this morning. But if you would, let's bow and let's pray, uh, um, even as we read. Father, we are grateful, again, that we get to come to you this morning, uh, and in gratitude in our hearts, Lord, to be able to lay before you um, our lives and our church family. God, I pray that you would speak to us as a body about what you love about worship. God, we believe that Jesus came and died and rose again. And because that's true, there's a response that is, that's fitting. And God, we want to be among the people on this earth that give that fitting response. And so would you speak to us this morning from your word? Would you be our teacher? Would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus Christ alone in this place? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, in the month of June, I've been asked by the elders to sort of preach four sermons on a vision of uh, future uh, here at Providence. And all this will culminate on a vote uh, uh, on June 28th on that Sunday night. And so uh, what I want to do and uh, have done, uh, we actually started last week. I'm going to do the second piece right now. And that is to build four sermons around our mission statement here at Providence. And what that says is this, is that we exist to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and to worship him. Last week, what we looked at was that first word, right? Is we exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God. That's why we've been built as a church family. It's to, it's to glorify him. And we've been told, and what we looked at last time, is that God, in his mercy, is that God is on this unstoppable mission of creating a people in order to glorify himself. Now, what I want to do is actually start, though, with where everything is going to finish. And I don't mean everything like my sermon this morning or this worship service, but life, all of life. What does it look like at the end of time? Or maybe I should say, what's the beginning of the end of time, right? That will happen in heaven forever and ever and ever. And so I told you Romans. I meant that because we're coming back there. But if you want, if you want to turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. And I want to show you where God is taking us. And not only us as a church family called Providence, but the entire world and everyone who responds to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Revelation Chapter 5 says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. Now, let me just pause just for a second so you understand the scroll and the seals, okay? The scroll is literally the deed of the world. It's the inheritance of everything. And deeds during this time, they were sealed seven times with wax. And every time it was broken in front of the court of law, when you got the seven seals, it was verified as authentic. So what's happening here is God, the Father, he has... He has the deed in his hand. Who is the ultimate one that we're going to worship forever and ever and ever? And we're told there that he's weeping because he can't find anybody until, until this root of David, who is Jesus Christ, comes. And this is what he says. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, Providence, I want you to know something. There is absolutely nothing you can do to stop this from happening. Jesus literally will take that scroll and we will worship him forever. This is an unstoppable mission, not because we're talented, but because he's committed. He said this is going to happen. And this is where worship culminates. It looks like this. So now let's start from the beginning and we're going to meet in Romans. Okay, so now we know the end. Now, where did all this start? This idea of worshiping God. Well, the Bible tells us that you and I were created in the image of God. And Romans chapter 2 really describes a unique part of how he created us different and unique. We're told in Romans 2.15 that God literally etched 
his law into our hearts along with its standards of justice and righteousness and beauty. Now what this means is this, is that when God created you, he took your heart and he literally cut a channel to give you a category to describe beauty. This is why every single person, doesn't matter where you live, how you've been taught by your parents, what language you speak, doesn't matter. We all look up into the sky and we see a beautiful sunset and we think that is beautiful. And not only do we recognize that is beauty, we also recognize that nothing we've ever created matches how beautiful that is. That we can't do that. And it begs us to ask, how did that get there? Why is it that every generation and every culture considers certain things to be beautiful? Who or what brings all these hearts together to say, I agree, that's beautiful. He also says that he's carved righteousness upon our heart. What that means is that every culture, there's certain things, it doesn't matter where you live or where you're born, is that you, you see certain behaviors and you go, you know what, that's wrong. And the reason you know that's wrong is because you know that's not right. So if I walk down these steps and I walked over and I slapped a lady right now, which would be really, really wrong, wouldn't it? Every one of us, it doesn't matter where you came from, how you were, how you were taught, how you were raised, doesn't matter. There'd be something in your heart that says, you know what, I, even if you're a guest here at Providence, I don't, I, I don't really know a whole lot about church, and, but that just wasn't right. That wasn't right. We would all agree that. And, and the reason that we know that is because God has etched that righteousness, that standard upon our heart. He's built that law. He's carve that into our heart. And the very fact that we recognize beauty and we recognize right and wrong, it also leads us to want justice when that right is not done and that wrong is done. We want somebody. In fact, we all go, you know what? Something should be done about this. It doesn't matter how you've been taught. That's how you were built. And the reason is because you and I were built in the image of God. And this is why no culture in the history of, human, of, of, of all humanity has ever existed without some form of worship. You go with George Tashir right now to any country in the world, any village in the world, and there will be some expression of worship in that village. We're literally wired for it. What's interesting, though, is, is, that, is that when sin entered our heart, this human bent was distorted. Worship went awry. You see, just as palm trees bend towards the sun, so the heart of all humanity is bent towards worship. But when sin came into the world, it's almost as if the palm trees started to bend towards the shadows. And this was the reality of our heart. Worship went awry. Unable to direct our worship to God because our relationship with him was broken Romans 1 tells us that we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature instead of the creator. And amazingly, instead of crushing us, God chose to rescue us, to redeem us. And he did this by sending Christ from heaven to earth 
And Jesus lived here and he gave perfect obedience to the law. He was a righteous man. And yet he went to the cross for my sin and for yours. He paid that penalty and absorbed the wrath of the father that was directed towards us because of our rebellion. And then Jesus was buried in a grave. And three days later, he rose from the dead and extended to every one of us an invitation. And that is that if we would believe in him, he would forgive us of our sin. He would reconcile us back into a right relationship with God. He would redirect that bent that we have that has been tilted in sin to the shadows and point it back to him, the ultimate son, the ultimate light. And that he would also connect us, as we looked at last week, to his people, his church that was specifically built to proclaim the excellencies of his worth. From a people who've been rescued out of darkness and brought into light. This is what God did. And so we know where we're going. We're going to worship forever. And we know that for those in Christ who have trusted Jesus. That he's rescued our worship. And has brought it back to a place to where we can direct it back to its ultimate source. So worship then is this, is this joyful and sacrificial response That we give back to God only after we have been shown his worth and his work in Jesus Christ. And so it's sort of like breathing, right? God reveals and we respond. God reveals, it's like inhale. And how we respond is how we exhale. And the Bible talks about worship, not not so much in singing as an entire life response that's supposed to literally change the way we do everything in our life. And so there's a, there's a way to worship at work. And it doesn't mean bowing down on the floor and praying or singing or having Caleb on the radio at your workplace, though those things may, may be fitting. But the reality is, is that when you recognize as a worker that you've been built in the image of another worker, a God who builds and creates And he is excellent in everything that he creates. He's precise and orderly in everything. Is that when we then put our hands to work in light of his revelation of how he works, it causes us, it motivates us to put forth an effort that's worthy of his glory. We can't be perfect because he's the only perfect one. But our worship can literally be manifested in the way that we work So long as we're conscious of the reality of God in our life. Saying, God, you're excellent in what you did. And so even though this is just like a a time report or 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 a PowerPoint presentation or a surgery or whatever it is that it is that you do as a work. Is that unto the Lord, we say, God, I want to worship you today in doing this as well as I possibly can. We worship in how we eat. Right? You have food before you. And we say, God, I didn't create a cow. I didn't create potatoes. I didn't create, I didn't create any of this stuff. But you did. And so we pause and we give him thanks. And that's worship. Many people in this room are in school. All of us should be learning. And when we learn, we're not learning to put a piece of paper on a wall or to get a job one day. We live in his world. All our learning about the world, whether you're taking physics or biology or math or English, whatever it is that you're studying, 
ultimately points back to something he created, he designed. Even creativity is something he designed. And so art, English, creative writing, all of these things, they're all supposed to be pointers to say, hey, there is a God. And he created beauty and justice and righteousness upon our heart. And this this worship then is for every area of our life. And it's to be manifested in our lives personally, in our homes, in our families. And also when we gather together as a church family here, we call that corporate worship. So what I want to do today in this sermon, I promise you we're almost to get to Romans 11. Okay. I want us to place worship under the microscope. And I want us to zoom in all the way down to where the only thing filling the screen is corporate worship. That seems to be a pretty pertinent thing around here right now. And so you should probably know where, where, I, I'm, I'm, where, where, where God is really pressing on my heart as it relates to how do we worship together when we gather together. But ultimately, I hope you'll see, though, is that these four or five songs that we choose to sing week by week is only a tiny fraction of what we know is a life of worship. And so after 11 chapters of proclaiming and expounding on this amazing gospel of Jesus, Paul spontaneously erupts in personal worship. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what I want to show you here is four things about Jesus that should inspire a particular response in his people. The first is that Jesus' worth should fuel our passion in worship. This whole thing should be about Jesus. It's interesting to me that we would not worship Jesus if Jesus were not worthy. And yet he is so worthy. In fact, his word is so clear in speaking of his worth. When he says things like Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so I think it's amazing to me that God has revealed to Paul his immense worth, and Paul spontaneously erupts in worship. And once he finishes his personal declaration of worship, He turns the the entire course of his letter. And from this point on, for the remaining five chapters, what he's going to do is he's going to describe how do we as the people of God respond in a worshipful way to God 
because of what has been revealed about his worth and his work on our behalf. It's amazing to me that the first thing he talks about is corporate worship. I appeal to you, brothers, plural, according to the mercy of God, that you offer your bodies, plural, to living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your, plural, act of worship. And so, what you find here is, at very least, in verse 1 here, at least four different things that should mark our worship as it relates to the worth of Jesus. The first is that worship is a confessional response. In fact, the very idea, when we talk the word worship, it literally comes from two Latin words, worth-ship. It's a response to someone's worth. That Jesus reveals who he is and what he's done And we confess in response to that. Second thing is that worship must be Christ exalting. You see, our worship must always be directed right to Jesus Christ. For it is his worth and it is his work in the cross and resurrection that has made mercy available to each and every one of us. It should be our commitment as a church family, no matter where you're at in this church, To learn how to duck and get out of the sight line between God and his people. You see, there is nothing more true than the worthiness of Jesus. But there is also nothing more true that as sinners, we are all glory thieves. We all delight to rob God of honor by making people think much of us. And so when we come together to worship, whether you stand on the stage or not, whether you teach, no matter what it is that you do, is that not necessarily physically, because that would be an awkward church if everyone just walked around ducking. But, but the fact is, is that within the attitude of our heart is that we would look to always be pointing all glory to Jesus Christ. The third thing that worship involves as a, re- as a result of the worth of Jesus is this idea of called consecration. We don't use this word a whole lot. We don't, it's not a word that's used a lot in our culture, but it really is a powerful word. It talks about the worth of Jesus in his holiness and what is our response if we're not holy. And so one of the responses that should fill the worship place and the worship of our life is a life of repentance. When we look at God and we say, God, you are holy. And then we look at ourselves and we think, I'm not. God, would you forgive me and would you cleanse me of my sin? But not only does it speak to this idea of cleansing and repentance, it also speaks to this idea of submission. And when he uses this phrase here, I appeal to you according to the mercy of God that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's really an interesting thing. You don't hear this a lot in the scriptures. In the scriptures, you read a whole lot about dead sacrifices, not living ones. You see, the Bible tells us that even before Christ came is that God set up a system basically to where that would point specifically to one that would come, the ultimate lamb who would come and give his blood and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. But until that came, God set up a sacrificial system so that if we sinned against God is that we would come to the temple, to the altar with an animal 
And that animal had to be shed. That blood of that animal had to be shed. And it became a covering or atonement for our sin. So what would happen is blood would literally be spilled and it would be sprinkled on the altar. And then they would take the animal that was now dead and place it up on the altar and it would burn on fire. Now, all of this was supposed to be symbolic of when Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. So he was an unblemished lamb and he gave himself by dying and having his own blood sprinkled upon the altar. And then he gave his life for us. But see, what happened is, so these animals, once it got uncomfortable on top of the altar, when it got really, really hot, they didn't have the opportunity to jump off because they were dead. And Paul here is speaking about a life of worship is ultimately a life of saying, God, sometimes your will, it makes me nervous. Sometimes I get laughed at. Sometimes I want to jump off. Sometimes it gets really hot. Sometimes the fire of the world and pressure to... It makes me want to just get off this altar. And the fact is, is that you and I, because we have free will, we have the ability to choose. We can do that. We can disobey God. We can say, I don't want your will. I want my will. And so part of worship literally is where we come and we say, all right, God, it really is hot up on this altar. But I'm going to stay here trusting your heart is committed to my good and it's best in the end. And so it involves this consecration of saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. Would you purify me? And would you use my life? And the fourth thing is worship should be entirely, not entirely. It should definitely include celebration. If you and I have been brought from death into life and God has done all this because of the mercy of Jesus, there should be a celebratory response. We should be happy about this. That we get to worship God for what he has done. And so Jesus' worth should fuel our passion in worship. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus' desire for health in his body should fuel our commitment to worship. It should fuel our commitment to worship. You see, when we get to heaven, nobody is going to combine the word commitment and worship into one sentence. Nobody in Revelations chapter 5 that we just read earlier is, I'm going to be committed to worship today. Commitment only matters here on this earth when it comes to worship. In heaven, it will be the most natural thing. Here on the earth, though, we're, 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 we have an enormous headwind. You see, as long as we live in this fallen world, we're going to need fuel to push through the headwind, to worship God wholeheartedly because of weariness and distraction and defilement. In heaven, no one shows up to worship with a sour face, but that's not true of what's happened here today. No one shows up weary or defiled or distracted. No one in Revelation 5 is wondering what time the ball game begins. (laughs) And if we're going to beat those people to the restaurant. But here on the earth, like... All of you and myself. I, mean, I, I knew I'm going to preach this. And there's was time, even this morning, right, where I was distracted. And so what is it that's going to hold us together? And this is why Paul uses the word, I appeal. I appeal is a plea for motivation. 
Meaning, I, I know you don't want to do this all the time. Sometimes you come to worship and you don't want to sing. I appeal. I appeal. Be motivated. And one of the fuels that God gives us when we're on this earth and there's this headwind of everything that would push us away from worship is Jesus' commitment for health in his body. You see, Jesus wants his body believing and hoping and enduring even when it's tired and lonely and hurting. And so he gives us corporate worship. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. You see, during corporate worship, when we gather together to worship the Lord, we are to be encouraged by the faith and passion of our brothers and sisters. You see, one of the, the, the things that I love about choir is that when the, I see the choir, right, and, and they've worked through some of the headwind so that they don't have a sour face either. All of a sudden, I look up and I see people who are hoping and believing and loving Jesus and still believing in Jesus from last week. And if I'm distracted, I can look and go, wait a minute, I don't want to be left behind. Now, that doesn't take a choir. It's everybody up here, whether you're playing instruments, it doesn't matter. And what they see is the congregation because they're a part of the congregation. They're supposed to be worshiping just like we are. And so how this works is that, is that we, because I'm never up back there, is, for good reasons, is I'm looking up and, and I'm motivated. I'm motivated by people who are believing. Why? Because we're admonishing and teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And they are motivated by the faith response of the people who are here. And so it's not the people and the choir, it's the people and the people. And we're all singing together. We're all motivating one another to say, we've got to push through the headwind of everything that's in front of us and worship Jesus because he's worthy. See, corporate worship must be strongly bent towards congregational participation. God loves the heart and God says that the mouth is the window into the heart. And so the chief musical sound in worship, corporately, should be the singing voices of his congregation. His desire for the health in his body should fuel our commitment to worship. Third thing is that Jesus' passion for unity in his body should fuel our humility in worship. He's passionately committed to our unity. I believe that if our corporate worship is ever to be holy and, and acceptable... It must be wedded with unity. You see, shortly before Jesus was arrested in the garden, you know what he was doing? He was praying. You know who he was praying for? It says that he was praying for his disciples, but he was also praying for everyone that would come after his disciples who would believe in the message of the gospel. You and me. Think about that. Jesus was praying for you and me hours before he went to a cross. And you know one of the things he was praying John chapter 17, verses 20 and 23 says this. I pray also that those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. 
of providence to be praying for unity just hours before the cross on an evening that was so stressful that he was sweating blood is remarkable. And Paul saw how remarkable that was. And so when he was writing the church in Ephesus, this is what he wrote. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, father of all. Now what's happening here? He's pleading for them to live in a manner together that's worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And then he gives them four participles. I know it's been a long time since English, right? But a participle is just something that helps us get the verb done. The verb in this passage is be eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, it's impossible unless we practice humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. You say, well, why should we care about that? Because he says that we're seeking to represent something that has a whole lot of ones. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one, 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 one. Providence, we cannot walk in a manner worthy of our one Lord if we are divided on something as central as our worship of him. Which is why I believe that when we gather, God would prefer our silence amidst unity to our singing Amidst a storm of division. I believe if we as a church family cannot put on humility and patience, gentleness and forbearance and come and be unified in who we are worshiping, then God would say to us, shh. It's that important. Of course, the exhortation is not to pursue silence. It's to pursue unity. And one of the poisons to unity is our propensity to assign moral superiority to our preferences. We move from I like that to that's wrong. I'm sorry, I like that to that's right. And if that's right, then what's different from that is wrong. You see, when we do this, the result is that when various decisions are made or music is played in a way that violates our own preferences. We feel morally obligated to speak out against one another and sow seeds of discord. Providence, don't forget our whole heart is bent towards worship. What this means is is this, that, that every part is worshiping. Every part is worshiping. And if that's true, then every part that's not worshiping God is still worshiping something. And the Bible calls that anything we're not worshiping God is an idol. The thing about idols is they make us defensive and they make us fierce and they make us competitive in order to keep them. And if allowed, our heart, my heart, will make an idol out of anything. Food or wood or money or even a style of music that we prefer in our worship. 
So unity then is going to require humility and repentance. When we gather for worship, we need to remember that we are like horses that are harnessed together, affected by the speed and direction of the other worshipers to which we've been hitched. There is no one here that gets to run alone. We're connected, harnessed together. And so the only question that we should be asking when we come to this place is what is in the best interest of the body, even if it's not my preference? The only reason we would do this is because Jesus said, I'm worthy of worship and I want it when you're unified. So what are we going to sing? Fourth principle is that Jesus entrusted resources should guide our expression in worship. What God gives us should guide our expression in worship. You see, this is, this is such a helpful thing, really, in all of life. Is whatever God entrusts to us is prescriptive of the expression of worship he desires from us. Let me put that in a series of ways. One of the things I was asked by our search team is, Brian, is there anything that, that we as a church family should not do to you? I thought, wow, okay, that's an interesting question. And I said, well, I said, I would love for you not to hold me accountable for gifts that God has not given me. Just as I'm going to try not to hold you accountable for gifts that God's not given you. My eight-year-old, and now he's not eight, now he's 13. Um, He's 13, Caleb, right? He's at the farm right now. He's having an absolute blast. Um, And, uh, Caleb, when he was eight years old, I sat them all down one night. We were just, we were just talking. I said, guys, I said, I'm so excited as a man that you guys are becoming. The fact is that God has you on this earth for a reason. And I want you to know something. As your dad, I'm absolutely committed to helping you identify why you're here. To identify your life purpose. And to, and to resource that to be able to help you become the man that God wants you to become. And so I said, but now it's time to go to bed. So let's go upstairs. And so they're walking. And Caleb, who's, you know, he kind of works at his own pace anyway. And so Caleb's kind of lollygagging back. And he's just, you know, he's just pensive. He's just kind of thinking. And I said, son, I said, come on. It's really, it's time. And he goes, daddy, raises his hand. He goes, dad, how's a man ever supposed to learn his life purpose? (laughs) I said, well, it starts with a good night's rest. So let's go. (laughs) I said, but... I said, one of the ways you're going to know, son, is that he's given you clues. And those clues come in the forms of gifts. Not physical gifts, but things that you're good at, things that you love, things that you're interested in. And it's the same thing with the church family. What he gives us is prescriptive of what he wants from us. Now, for the sake of unity and excellence and wise stewardship, God knows you can't do everything. So God often leads the church to one primary stylistic musical expression. But surrounding that musical style, the full array of God's entrusted resources should be appreciated by the whole body and utilized for his glory. Don't forget the parable of the talents. The guy that received five talents didn't go out and use two of them and come back and God says, yeah, you did a great job. It's only the stewards that used all that God had given them that God said, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Now we know from scripture that God has preferences also. Psalm 100 says he loves congregational singing. Psalm 98 says he loves musical instruments. And Nehemiah 12 says he loves choirs. And amazingly, God has given us many of these gifts to be able to worship him right here at Providence. And so he's worthy. And he wants us enduring. And he wants us unified. And he's given us what he has given us to be able to give back to him to say, God, you are worthy. You're worthy. So how do we apply these principles? You see, this is the part of each of these messages that I'm least comfortable with. What I mean is, is if I can just have a text and can teach that text and can preach that text, I just get so comfortable in that. But when I have to start talking about my vision and all this kind of stuff, I get very, very antsy, right? I think it's important, though, because not only are you just listening to the Bible, you're also preparing to vote not on a person or a family, but on a mission and a vision. And you need to vote your conscience on June 28th. So how do we apply these principles? Where, where would I be leaning when it comes to musical expressions here at Providence? Well, as we hold tightly to these biblical principles, it's important that we hold the applications with an open hand. And so this right here is the picture that Providence should always have. The principles of God's word we hold with a tight fist and we say we're not going to relinquish those things. They're true to the end. We're going to die over these things. He is worthy of worship. Period. But the applications of how we go about practicing these, we need to be humble enough to hold them with an open hand. The reason is because in particular musically, culture is going to change. Music will change. We will change. So as we look to the Lord and lean not on our own understanding, the Bible tells us that he's going to help us to be faithful to the principles in a world of change. God has given a plurality of elders and leaders who will no doubt add their refinement to these thoughts. But I want to share with you right now how I'm dreaming and how I'm leaning in the area of corporate worship. There's nine of them. They won't take that long though. Number one is I envision Jesus smiling upon us as he is the blazing center of our worship. Number two, I envision us joyfully gathering every week to honor the worth of Jesus Christ And to fortify each other's faith through praying and preaching and singing and confessing. When I say confessing, baptism and Lord's Supper are public corporate confessions where we say, God, I need you. I love you. Number three is I envision us being so enraptured by the greatness of Jesus Christ that we will be freed from the exhaustion of our selfishness and preference And so passionate to give him an acceptable sacrifice of worship. Number four is I envision us fully enjoying the pleasantness of unity. Yielding our preferences for the good of the body. And being faithful with the mission that God has given us to tell people of his worth. Today billions of people have never heard the gospel. And Jesus is worthy of their worship. But they are not worshiping him because they don't know him. So the very last thing that we should be arguing about as a church family 
is the style of four or five songs that we are privileged to sing together each week. Number five, I envision a day when we will have one providence style that is appreciated by the whole congregation and utilized in every worship service on Sunday morning that sees our bands as a primary expression that at the wisdom and discretion of our worship leaders regularly utilizes the choir, orchestra, and configurations of each to supplement that sees its primary objective as being to reinforce and encourage congregational participation in singing and that fosters unity, excellence, and efficiency in managing our limited resources while maximizing our opportunities to engage the resources that God has entrusted to our care. Number six, I envision the congregation coming together to worship on special occasions, such as Psalm 150 worship nights, seasonal concerts, and at the prayer and worship gatherings on Sunday nights. I envision us putting forth an effort that's worthy of his glory, Understanding that an excellent effort may not always mean musical precision, especially because we're called to equip the body. As less experienced vocalists and musicians are being trained and equipped, they will need a safe place among safe people to grow and serve the Lord. Christ is no doubt worthy of excellence, but we must remember that genuine worship in the heart's of his people is more important than musical precision. Number next, I lost count. (laughs) Again, third time, I should have numbered these. I envision us training the next generation of children and students to love worship. And last, I envision and pray that we as a congregation will learn to be content in what God has led us to do as a body while rejoicing in the musical diversity among other Christ-honoring churches in our community. God, would you help us to see Jesus as supreme? And would you help us to see that our unity is supremely important to him? Let's pray together. Father, we... Thank you for your word that instructs us and that gives us hope. We thank you for the privilege to worship you. And we confess to you, Lord, that that we get so distracted. We thank you for the reminder from Revelation that one day we won't be distracted. And we pray, God, that you would use this thing called corporate worship in our own lives and in this body to prepare us for that day, to make us ready. God, thank you for what you have done for us to make available the mercy that we need to bring us from death into life. God, we look to you. Would you do that work? Oh God, thank you for what you've made available here. Thank you, Lord, that we abound in resources, musically, so many abilities. 
And God, would you give us wisdom as a church family to humbly and intentionally seek to use those resources for your glory and our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.